on this edition of the Iowa Business Report. There are some upsides that can come out of just re-examining what you need to get and generate from these employees and from the business standpoint, what work needs to be done. Employers and employees have a different relationship these days, and that means rethinking things from a legal standpoint. A trio of attorneys shares insight. Entrepreneurship has not recovered from the depths of the pandemic. And in our business profile, you'll hear about a company that looks back in order to look forward. This is the Iowa Business Report for the second weekend of July 2022. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Here is Jeff Stein. Employment law is a nuanced and rapidly growing specialty for attorneys, as businesses seek to keep track of local, state, and federal laws, rules, and regulations. Three employment law specialists with the Fredrickson and Byron Law Firm in Des Moines shared insight with me recently. They conducted a presentation at the recent annual meeting of the Iowa Association of Business and Industry in Dubuque. Emily Pontius, Kendra Simmons, and Bridget Pinnock, who answers first. What are some of the main things in mid-2022 that people are seeking counsel about in this broad category of employment? As lawyers who advise employers, I think the number one struggle right now is getting and keeping workers in this post I hesitate to say COVID world. Employees are reluctant to come back to work. If they are back at work, then there is often a change or shift in the amount of work employees might be willing to do, the time they're willing to put in, or the tasks they're willing to do. And so helping employers find creative ways to retain employees and hire to replace those, I think those are the biggest challenges we see right now. So, Kendra, from a legal standpoint, that can be kind of difficult because employers are used to saying, this is how we do things, and if you violate the employee code that my lawyer drafted, there will be ramifications. So that's a different dialogue you're having with clients. Yeah, absolutely. And to spin off of some of what Bridget was describing as well, there's a struggle right now, I think, with the steps that employers usually take to protect their business and what employees are willing to live with. For instance, I think we could start to see more pushback on things like non-competes and other restrictions and rules that employers have in place. It's becoming more of, I think, a dynamic conversation than the traditional employer-employee relationship used to be. So, Emily, given that, the fact that it is more of an employee's market, if you will, as opposed to employer's market, has that changed what you are more likely to talk with a business owner about? Because for years, I think we've been pretty clear about setting certain expectations for employees, and and that protects all parties. This is now, I think, a little more fluid situation. That's exactly right. You know, one of the huge issues coming out of the pandemic is the issue of remote work. And we had 
so many employers pre-pandemic who would say, you have to be in the office. Remote work wasn't even on the horizon, wasn't even a possibility. Being at work was an essential function of the job and you had to be there in order to do the work. And of course, with the pandemic, they realized that a lot of people can be very productive if they are working from home or if they're working from a co-working space or working from a coffee shop or you know even working from the beach. We have to now look at that and say, well, you can no longer say it doesn't work. We've already proven it does work. So employers are now beginning to consider that, especially with the fact that they are trying so hard to retain and attract good employees. So when I'm talking to employers, what I'm really trying to do is get them to think about what they really need. And are we just digging our heels in, but it's not actually doing us any good? Or are we trying to move forward for what we need for your business? There's an awful lot of the, we've always done it this way, and and that requires some change. But Emily, what about oversight of these employees, especially if they're working remotely? I think that was one of the things that employers used to say, how do I know that they're doing what they should be doing? That's a really great point. That, of course, seems to be the thing that people jump to. If performance is not good, what I'm trying to do is get an employer to say, okay, but do we know that it's because they're not here? And do you really have time to look over their shoulder when they are here? So again, we all have to think about the workplace a little bit differently. There are ways we can work on improving performance and conduct that don't involve someone being in the office necessarily. And before you do let people, for example, work for the beach, you definitely want to look at the tax implications to that. And there are legitimately workplaces where people do need to be together and collaborate in person. And you may see in your business that your performance really did take a hit because people weren't together. So that's another thing to consider. So there are workplaces where people need to be together, but we can be creative in those areas where they don't need to be together. Kendra, we were very concerned about safety as the pandemic began. We're still concerned about safety. Are there some lessons that businesses have learned or some protocols that now are part of this new normal? Well, I think we're all going to, for one thing, look at group lunches, never the same again. Maybe switch up things like that instead of doing like a buffet line, consider doing something like box lunches is just one example. I think the concept of officing has changed as well and kind of protocols around that. Do you office share? Do people have their own dedicated space? What are cleaning protocols like? But for the most part, I think a lot of the true COVID, I guess, safety specific protocols. Some of them will stick around, but I've seen more of those fall by the wayside. And really the lessons I've seen employers learn is to listen to their employees. You know, if employees bring forward concerns, take those seriously, engage in a conversation and make a decision that's right for the business, whether it's a valid concern, is there something that you should change going forward as an employer? I think that's maybe one of the biggest lessons to be learned is to engage in that kind of conversation with employees when they bring concerns forward. So, Bridget, it would appear that, as with most things, if a business is thinking about a situation first, planning, trying to stay ahead of things, whether it was during COVID, whether it's with all of this new workplace, that's really the key is to be paying attention and to rely on good counsel for support. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And listening to what employees are saying, noticing what's happening in the world. I mean, even with gas prices right now, telecommuting helps employees save commute. Where a scenario previously someone may have had to take a whole day off work to go to a doctor appointment, perhaps now they only need half a day because they're home and, and can be productive the rest of the day. So I think there are some upsides that can come out of just re-examining, like Emily said, what you need to get and generate from these employees and from the business standpoint, what work needs to be done. And reducing office space or facility space, we've seen that happen quite a bit as well too, which saves some funds. Of course, on the flip side, the security measures you talked about, technology, that's a huge expense and struggle to get equipment has surfaced for even law firms from setting up remote workstations at home. So I think planning, being nimble, being able to pivot if, if the pandemic taught us anything is, like you said, just because things were or have been this way doesn't mean they have to be. And let's try to be creative to achieve those business goals. Attorneys Emily Pontius, Kendra Simmons, and Bridget Pennick are shareholders in the Fredrickson and Byron offices in Des Moines. More online at fredlaw.com. We spoke in Dubuque on Wednesday, June 15th. Still to come... Reviving Iowa Entrepreneurship, and will profile a business that is in the middle of its second decade of sharing stories of Iowa's glorious past. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. This is Michael Swanger, owner of Iowa History Journal. Are you tired of the same old news? Then pick up the July-August issue of Iowa History Journal to discover new, uplifting stories about the father of space science, James Van Allen. TV's The House with the Magic Window, Sioux City's World War II base, and our exclusive series about the history of Iowa radio, Making Waves. Get your copy of Iowa History Journal at Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Hy-Vee, Fairway, and iowahistoryjournal.com. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa, leading successful business, innovation, growth, and transitions. Search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook and get more at AdvanceIowa.com. Iowa has not experienced a rebound in entrepreneurship activity in the aftermath of the global pandemic. That's according to a new Indicators of Entrepreneurship report from the Kauffman Foundation. And Iowa's experience is contrary to the national trend. In 2021, Entrepreneurship in the United States increased to 2.2 on the Kauffman Index, but Iowa's rating was a minus 0.11. The Kauffman Foundation studies early-stage entrepreneurship activity based on four equally weighted measures which together make up the index. First, rate of new entrepreneurs. Second, the percent of new entrepreneurs who created their businesses out of opportunity instead of necessity. Third, the number of jobs created by startups per capita. And fourth, the one-year average survival rate of the new endeavor. But one bright note, and certainly positive with regard to sustaining those new efforts in Iowa, 86.9% of Iowans who started a business did so because they saw a market opportunity rather than starting a business out of necessity. That's 6% more than the national average. Coming up, magazine storytelling. 
You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. Imagine a fully restored 1971 VW bus. Now imagine yourself behind the wheel. Wow, groovy ride, man. It's the Camp Courageous 50th Anniversary Raffle, and someone will drive off in that classic VW bus. Go to CampCourageous.org to learn more about purchasing a ticket, raffle ticket information, and more at CampCourageous.org. That's really far out, dude. Support for the Iowa Business Report comes from the Iowa Business Council, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to elevate Iowa's economy through leadership, research, and advocacy. Learn more and review their latest quarterly member survey by going to iowabusinesscouncil.org. In our business profile, we'll introduce you to Michael Swanger, owner and publisher of Iowa History Journal a magazine founded by a previous guest on this program, author Mike Chapman. In full disclosure, I have written for the magazine, including a three-part series this year on the centennial of radio in Iowa. Michael Swanger shares the mission of Iowa History Journal. Well, Jeff, we're in our 14th year now, and we are the only statewide popular magazine devoted exclusively to Iowa's history. We publish six issues a year, and we have readers in every county across Iowa and readers in more than 25 states because, as you know, Iowans migrate. Sometimes they come back during uh, the warm weather months. So in a nutshell, that's who we are. We publish stories that hit on a range of topics in most every issue because we feel that the best model for us is to have a universal wide appeal in terms of reaching every Iowan. So for example, most every issue will have a story about politics, sports. Sometimes we focus on a city, arts and entertainment, military, business. There's a variety of things that we like to hit on because we feel that there's something in every issue for every Iowan. So that's key to us that we don't narrowly define ourselves too much because it would be very easy to just go off on a tangent, especially as a history publication and be very narrow, but we try to have a very broad scope. And we think it's been successful over our 14 years, which is amazing to think that it's we're in our 14th year now. And we're in about two months, we're going to start planning for our 15th year. Now, you purchased the magazine after its founding. So what is it in the 21st century that led you to say, I'm going to invest in a print magazine? Because I'm sure there are a lot of folks who would say, oh, the world is digital and... I have heard uh, the mantra of print being dead for the last 40 years, and it hasn't happened, and I don't think it's going to. But what intrigued you about this as a business? Well, I guess first and foremost is my passion for print. That comes from working for Iowa newspapers for 20 years. And I think if you talk, as you know, to anyone who worked in the newspaper business, that once you stay with that business, the old adage that there is ink in your blood, I think, reigns true because that's what you know. And it's not to say that I'm a Luddite, that I, I'm not aware of the importance of uh, digital content and other forms that are obviously very popular today. We try to embrace the digital aspect of the publishing world with our social media platform and our website. But we are old-fashioned in the regard that we don't give away our content. So we're old-fashioned capitalists in that way, because if you want to get the full story, you have to pick up the magazine. 
we know, as you know, that there is still a lot of desire for the printed product. There's that tactile feel that you just can't duplicate online. And besides, who doesn't love the smell of fresh ink and paper? Our readers have demanded that we print the magazine on paper. I could probably count on, well, maybe both hands, the times over the years where someone has asked if we've had digital content. The overwhelming majority of our customers, our readers, want the printed product. And so, yes, there is still a market for it. I never believe the naysayers who, who disagree. Well, I don't think there are too many successful entrepreneurs who believe the naysayers because then nothing would ever get done, quite obviously. If I want to read the magazine on a chair on my front porch, I'm going to read a magazine. I'm not going to look at the glare on a screen. And I respect those who use e-readers. It's just not the way that I consume information. Do you find that that is generational or is it more a matter of style and the content itself? It could be a little bit of both, Jeff. Obviously, people who grew up reading newspapers like us, that's just kind of built into their daily routine. Print is what is familiar, so that's what they see. But I also see younger people reading the magazine as well. We have been in all the junior highs and high schools in Iowa over the years, not every year. We're also at libraries, and I know that uh, kids are seeing the magazine that way. And I also know that teachers are using the magazine, buying it out of their own pocket because the school resources aren't there for them to do it. And they're using it in their classrooms. So I know that kids are seeing the magazine as well. So I do have hope that the younger generation of Iowans that are in school now, especially those K through 12 students, won't think of the printed product as a complete antiquity. I know that my son is going to be a sophomore in college. And of course, he grew up as the son of a publisher. So he's aware of it and he enjoys it too. And so there's hope in that regard. Now, for those who hear the conversation and they say Iowa History Journal comes out six times a year, some may say, well, what does this man do with the rest of his time? But the reality is this is full-time work because the moment you get the satisfaction of seeing an issue come off the press, you're already neck deep in the creation of the next issue. Talk about the lead time that is necessary so that I'm holding a fresh copy, for example, in the month of July. That's correct. Our editorial calendar is planned a year in advance, and that's a habit that I learned over the years working at newspapers and working at places where I not only worked for a daily newspaper and weekly newspapers, but I also became uh, an editor of special content in magazines and uh, some of the places I worked, and those always required advanced planning. So all those skills that I learned over the years came into play when I took over IHJ. And if you don't plan ahead, then you're in trouble because the stories that we publish require time. They require time to research. They require time to write. If you're racing with your content to go to press, it shows. And we don't want that to happen. Our readers have come to expect quality writing, quality research over the years in the stories from a variety of writers, yourself included, obviously. The other part of it is, is that not only is just planning and working on the editorial calendar, but also gathering artwork is probably the biggest creative challenge in terms of content. But in terms of being a small business owner, being a publisher, I wear many hats. As I often tell people who call us to subscribe, I pick up the phone, answer it, and and take their information. I also sweep the floors at the end of the night. So I'm, I'm more than busy. In all reality, and I know I was kind of joking there about that, but the fact of the matter is is that 
I'm probably working the job of two to three to four full-time people. But when it's your business, it's your baby, you don't think about uh, the hours, you don't think about the long nights and the weekends. It's just, you do it because you love it. And this is what you want to be doing with your life. I typically close these business profile interviews by asking about the next few years, the next five years. And it's especially, if you will, not necessarily ironic, but it's an interesting juxtaposition to ask the publisher of a history magazine about the future. But I'll do it. So what do you see for the next five years, the next 14 years of the publication? That's a great question. I'm not sure I've thought about the next 14 years, (laughs) Uh, maybe the next five. And it's funny, you should mention about even next year, because I have had some ideas in my mind about what I think that we could do in terms of expanding our business. And one of the first goals was to diversify and increase our distribution, which we are doing with our new July, August issue. And that was a big hurdle to clear in the last year or two, because it doesn't happen overnight. And I'm proud to say that we are really beginning to realize that now in, in the sense that we have always been sold at Hy-Vee, Beaverdale Books, and a couple spots here and there. With our May-June issue, we began being sold at every Barnes & Noble in Iowa, which we have found to be quite fruitful. And we are also now being sold at many of the fairway stores, starting with our July-August issue. And we're also going to be sold at about a dozen Walmarts in Iowa. That's a big jump. That's a, a tremendous coup for a publication our size, for a business our size. Here we are, a small family-owned Iowa business competing with these national products on the newsstand. So I'm very proud of the fact that's one of the goals that I had in mind that we have attained down the road. Of course, you'd always like to have more pages, and that was something I would like to do. And we've toyed with the idea of maybe uh, selling some other products down the road. So I could see those things happening too. Michael Swanger of Iowa History Journal. The magazine comes out six times each year with the new July-August issue now available, featuring noted Iowa scientist James Van Allen on the cover. We spoke via Zoom on Thursday, July 7. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. We're also found on all the major podcast distributors, 19 now in all. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa, leading successful business, innovation, growth, and transitions. Search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook and get more at AdvanceIowa.com. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com.